Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by MP Publishing, publisher of the debut novel from UV Zalco. It's called A Brilliant Novel in the Works. It is available now for pre-order and will be in stores on August 14th, 2012. It's about a guy named UV. He worries. He has a wife who wants things he can't give her, an editor who wants a book he can't deliver, a brother-in-law whose gastrointestinal disease may lead him to a morbid end, and dead parents who, well, they don't really want anything, but that doesn't stop the memory of them from haunting him. As the structure of Yuvi's novel falls apart, so do his life and marriage. His novel and his life blend together as he struggles to pull out of the mess, traveling from his suburban Jewish home in Atlanta to the North Carolina mountains of his father's childhood to several hospital waiting rooms to the living room of a grieving Palestinian man and even to Uranus. And then back again, of course. Cheryl Strayed, best-selling author of Wild, has this to say, quote, Yuvi Zalko writes like the secret love child of the smartest person you've ever met and the weirdo who lives down the block. In a brilliant novel in the works, he mines the territory between heartbreak and hilarity with a voice so original. You must read this. And Gary Steingart says, quote, if you buy just one book this year, consider resting this book on top of it. Yuvi Zalko is a writer I'm going to watch from a safe distance, end quote. Heartbreaking and hilarious, a brilliant novel in the works is the utterly original debut from UV Zalco. It's due out in stores on August 14th from MP Publishing. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here right. we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is kind of a radio show. This is small enough to put in your pocket. My guest today is Edgar Oliver. Very pleased to have him here. He is an American stage and film actor, a poet, a performance artist, and a playwright. And he has long been a fixture on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where he has lived and worked since the 1970s. Uh, some of you may be familiar with his poetry collections, such as The Man Who Loved Plants, uh, or his plays, one of which is called The Drowning Pages. He's done a popular one-man show called East 10th Street, Self-Portrait with Empty House. Uh, he has appeared on, uh, on the Discovery Channel on a program called Oddities, 
And uh, he's also a regular performer for the Moth storytelling series, which is uh, terrific. So he's done a lot of stuff. And coming up uh, on May 28th, he will be appearing at the Nervous Breakdown Literary Experience in Brooklyn uh, over at Public Assembly in Williamsburg. Uh, That's at 70 North 6th Street. Uh, And we're doing this in conjunction with Emergency Press, which is a terrific indie. Edgar will be appearing alongside other writers, including Lenore Zion, uh, Elma Baker, who some of you may know from This American Life, and the author Chad Ferries. Trust me uh, when I tell you that you don't want to miss this. Showtime is 7 p.m., five bucks at the door. So uh, Edgar and I are going to be talking uh, momentarily uh, momentarily at length. And uh, what can I say about him? He's a real delight. Uh, He's a sweetheart of a guy. And he's truly unique. Uh, I think that's safe to say. Or at least that's my perception of him. I've never had the pleasure of meeting him in person. uh, But having talked to him for a while, uh, one gets the sense that he's genuinely, uh, genuinely eccentric and uh, genuinely unusual in the best possible way. He is, uh, he's uncontrived is what I'm trying to say. And he's lived an interesting life. And uh, his perspective, uh, to me, feels... Uh, unvarnished by something that tends to varnish other perspectives, if that makes any sense. It is a, a pleasant lack of varnishing. So I think you're going to enjoy hearing us talk. He's a great one. And uh, I, I now uh, have to go quickly. I have to go pack. Once again, I am uh, in transit. I'm flying again this week, another airport, another airplane. I am off to Tennessee uh, for my godson's baptism, my godson Oscar. So I will be in the Great Smoky Mountains. I will possibly be at the Dollywood theme park. Uh, I will be making an appearance at a youth soccer game. And I will be in a church at some point in a place of worship in the house of God, witnessing a baptism and hopefully in some small way, helping to nurture the development of a human being who enjoys a pleasant lack of varnishing. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, I'm sitting um, in the back room of my place on Attorney Street, looking out the back window. Um, and uh, I really just moved here nine months ago. Um, so it's still sort of new for me here. You know, for 35 years, I lived in this old townhouse on East 10th Street. And then uh, 
last August I moved down here. Uh, Why did you so, move? What, 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 what prompted the move? Well, um, the, the people who own that building, um, uh, you know, got in touch with my lawyer because I've had a lawyer on retainer for the past 10 years. His name is Kent Carlson, and he's considered one of the best tenant lawyers in New York, you know. And uh, I, um, well, for the past, I guess, like 15 or 16 years, I was, you know, the only person left living in that building, which was amazing. You know, it was sort of an amazing situation to be in. Uh, you know, it's an old four-story townhouse, and I lived on the top floor. Um, but the rest of the house was just empty, so it was just kind of just me in this big old house. But, uh, you know, they, the, the people who own that building... Uh, you know, contacted my lawyer and said that they really wanted to sell the place. And it, well, it was beginning to just seem a bit shaky, you know? Yeah. And, um, and they seemed like they wanted to do the right thing. And, and they showed me some other places and buildings they owned. And I saw this place on Attorney Street and, You know, they showed me this one apartment. It had windows in the front and the back, which was good, but it seemed really small. But, but then I uh, discovered while looking at it that the apartment across the hall was empty too. So I said I'd consider moving if they gave me both places, you know. And they said they would, and it just seemed like time to do it, so I did. Wow, okay. And like that place that you lived in for 30 years on 10th Street, like... Uh, a lot of stuff happened there, you know. Like I, I read, I've read bits and pieces, uh, you know, in interviews that you've done in the past, and it sounds like there was a lot of uh, interesting activity, a lot of interesting people in and out of that place. Yes, yes, it was amazing. I I agonized over moving, but I finally decided to just go, to just go ahead and do it, you know. Sure. And uh, um, and I I miss Tenth Street. But I like my new place so far, you know. Well, it's um, weird, you know. You go through like you live someplace for thirty years, and then you get to the point where you're going to move. And I imagine it was somewhat traumatic, or you, you know, that that is a in its way a big change. And then once it happens, did you find that it that it was sort of uh, anticlimactic? You know what I'm saying? Like, did it did it seem like like a big deal to you once it happened, or do you feel like it was a relative non-event? Well, um, I, for a few months, I really just didn't know. I couldn't really seem to do anything in particular. I would just kind of go outside and stand on a corner and think, oh, I'll get on. I don't, I didn't, I'd just kind of go wandering, which is what I do always anyway. But I, after about three months, I actually realized, God, I, I truly am in sort of in sort of a state of shock. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know? yeah. It's, a, it's, I mean, it's and, a, thirty years is a long time to live anywhere. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and then after realizing that, I sort of started getting over it. <laughs> you know, right? Uh, it did take a while. It was, uh, I think, I was in a state of shock for a few months. After I moved, but you know, 
So when you say you wander around, you mean this is what you do on a daily basis? You just walk the streets of Lower Manhattan and and, and observe. Well, um, I love to just wander around. I I actually love to go wandering in Brooklyn. You know, I love walking across the bridges. Um, and and I love Prospect Park. It's what about what what about it do you love? Well, I guess I just I like being outside, you know, and it seems in a way like a savage kind of forest. <laughs> you know, it really does seem kind of wild and lost, and it and it's also a uh, parts of it seem a bit decayed and desolate, you know. And so I um, I go there to think and and Did you say sing or did you say sing or think? Think, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and actually I kind of sometimes work there too, you know. You do writing work outside? Yeah. So and and you know and, and it's fun because you know there, like if I need to pee, I can just go into the trees and pee somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes like my outdoor office, you know. And you're just working on like a notepad, or you're writing by lo- like longhand? Yeah, I bring a tablet. Okay. So what are you working on these days? Are you writing a play? Yeah, I'm working on a new one-man show. Oh, you are okay. And what? Yeah. What? And what does that entail? What is? It, what's it about? I mean, what are you talking about in it? Well, it's going to be about my childhood, uh, growing up in Savannah with my mother and my sister Helen, and I'm going to call it. It's going to be called Helen and Edgar. And uh, tell me a little bit about your childhood in Savannah. Um, well, um, I actually won't tell you too much because I'm in the process of writing it, you know. Uh-huh. Um, well, so I mean, was it, was it, was it a happy childhood? Can we start there? Uh, yeah, yes, it was. I loved, I loved my childhood and I loved growing up in Savannah with mother and Helen. We were very isolated. Um, what mother... What do you mean, isolated? Well, we barely ever saw anyone else. Mother was sort of, you know, uh, terrified of other people and and sort of paranoid about other people too, you know. And and uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, mother thought that everybody had heard vicious gossip about her, which who knows, maybe mother was right. I don't know, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and quite possibly she was, you know, and mother also really was very, very suspicious of all her relatives, except mother's cousin Gibson. Okay. Was she meant, was she mentally well? I mean, do you feel like she, your mother was mentally well? Was she just, where did all this paranoia and suspicion come from? Well, I think there probably were good reasons for Mother to feel that way. Um, uh, but I also think that Mother was a little bit, you know, uh, possibly 
a little crazy, <laughs> you know. Uh, but she was incredibly fun. <laughs> she was an amazingly fun mother. Well, so what about her? Was um, what about her was so fun? I mean, you know, like, like temperamentally, or were, were there are there any like anecdotes you can share that would that would illustrate this? Well, mother was just like a child, really. She was like a uh, she was very innocent, and and she just loved to go driving, and we just all you know drive all over the countryside and play in cemeteries and swamps, you know. <laughs> and, so wait, you're uh, you're playing in cemeteries and swamps as a child? Yeah. Like well, okay, so what what are you like just running around the cemetery or are you playing like actual games? Mainly just wandering around exploring. Yeah. Lying on tombstones, you know. <laughs> and stuff like that. Well and so um, what was your sister Helen like and and what was that relationship like? Um, well, Helen is a year and a half older than me, uh, but, you know, uh, we were always very close, um, and then people always thought that maybe we were twins, you know, um, we pretty much... For, for long stretches of our childhood, didn't really have many other friends other than one another, you know. So what I'm, I'm curious about, like, the actual physical location of your house in Savannah, because you're talking about how isolated you were, but Savannah obviously has a, a good many people living in it. So were you living among lots of other people, or were you uh, somehow yeah, isolated, yeah. like, on the outskirts of town? No, it was in a neighborhood, you know. Um, East 36th Street, there were... You know, you know, houses on either side of us and houses out back. Um, but it it also had amazing trees. There were tons of trees all around. So in all of Savannah, it's kind of like that. It's a, a town that just every street really is like a like a tunnel of, of trees. These live oak trees everywhere. You know. Just Covered with moss, and so you know, in the backyard, it just you know could feel sort of like you're in this strange world of trees. It's a beautiful town. Yeah, it is. So it was also. Go ahead. Uh, it was also when you were growing up, sort of you know, all the downtown part was still really sort of decayed and abandoned, you know, because they hadn't restored any of the downtown yet. So it kind of, you know, it could seem in a way like it's a ghost town, parts of it. So, and, and where was your father throughout all this? Well, um, mother told us that our father, um, I died of a heart attack when I was a year old. And, you know, so that's what we, you know, believed. Um, and, uh, you know, Helen said that she could remember our father. Um, and uh, I, well, you know, had no memory of him, but I never, you know, so I, I uh, that made sense somehow. Um, but, but um, 
uh, growing up, it, it really, I never felt like it was a strange thing not to have a father because I'd never had one, you know. Right. Um, well, did you ever find out? Did you ever find out anything more than that? Was that that that's all you know? Is that he died of a heart attack when you were one? No, we did find out eventually. Um, and it's strange because I mean we could have probably found out earlier than we did because you know well sometimes we would go to Bonaventure Cemetery, which is where mother's family and our father and his family were all buried, and we do you know see our father's grave once or twice. Um, but somehow we, we didn't notice the date of his death that was carved on his tombstone. Uh, had we noticed, we would have realized that he had died, um, uh, two months before I was born. Uh, um, but when, well, when I was, um, 16 and Helen was 17, um, we all decided that that summer we were going to go to Paris for the summer. Um, uh, Helen and I had been, you know, had been madly studying friends together. I mean, we were all obsessed with the idea of going to Paris. Mother had never been and we all really wanted to go. And, um, you know, we made convinced mother to write to the this bank where we had some money in trust from our father's mother, our grandmother Helen, and asked them, you know, for money to go to Paris. And they gave us the money, and you know, we got passports. You know, for this trip, we'd never had any of our passports before, and we got passports. And God, we were so Helen and I were so looking forward to going on this trip, and then. And then the summer just kept, you know, went on, and and mother didn't get to do anything about getting plane tickets. I never mentioned this trip again, and then and then started, and then we started packing, and Helen and I realized that we were packing for our usual trip up north to Baltimore and Washington for the summer. And we realized that mother just wasn't going to go to Paris. And we became enraged with mother. We were furious. We felt horribly betrayed. And we just stopped speaking to mother or acknowledging her existence. You know? And how old were you at this time? You were 16 years old? Yeah. And Helen was 17. And this went on for three days. You know, my mother would follow us around the house, begging us to speak to her, and we would say to one another, you know, oh, did you hear anything? No, that must have been the wind. <laughs> you know? And, and then eventually, because we didn't see anybody else, you know, after three days of that, mother just had a broke down, she had this sort of nervous well, this breakdown, and she started sobbing, and and she said, you know, you know, you don't know what I've been through, you don't know what it's been like 
remember how I told you your father died? And at that point, Helen and I couldn't not respond. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> it's just like we were about to find out something so, so <laughs> unbelievable. So, so, so I said of a heart attack when I was a year old. And mother said, well, I lied. It was a morphine overdose. He died two months before you were born. Um, and God, at that point, Helen and I were just so excited to find this out, you know? It's an amazing thing. And um, we immediately said, you know, Mother said, I found uh, your father's body, you know. And, uh, Helen and I immediately said that it wasn't an accident. It was suicide. You drove him to it. <laughs> we were still so furious with Mother, you know. But, uh, but at that point, we just were all talking again. And, uh, and uh, I don't know, we were just so amazed to find this out about our father. Uh, and at that point, we just sort of forgot about the trip to Paris, you know. So you weren't. There was no sadness. There was no, and there was no uh, feelings of anger for your mother having lied to you. No. No, I think I pretty much understood immediately why mother had not told us that until then. You know. And did you ever get to Paris on your own? Well, when I was eighteen uh, and had graduated from high school. Um, at the end of that summer, Helen and I ran away together to Paris. And, you know, uh, mother never made it to Paris. She never did. How did you have the money to go? Well, um, we were very lucky that we did have this, you know, money and trust from our grandmother, our father's mother. Um, so, um, we, um, Washington University, and they had a um, year abroad program, and so Helen, you know, had already been planning to just go to Paris and, you know, study there, um, and I had been planning to go to Duke University, which is where our father went, but um, Helen and I, you know... I don't know why, we just decided that we would go together to Paris, so that's what we would do. And we plotted all this in French, <laughs> you know, with our secret language, you know, that we plot these things in in front of Mother, you know. Um, and uh, we, just we just wanted to do this together. We just decided to, and... Um, so, um, I, you know, we wrote to the trustee at, at the bank uh, without mother's knowledge and said, uh, but at that point I was 18, we said, you know, uh, now Edgar is 18, send the money to us now monthly and not to mother. So we, we just, you know, did this whole thing without mother's knowledge and, 
basically, basically, we sort of pulling the financial rug out from under Mother's feet. We did it, I mean, because we felt that you know Mother wouldn't let us go together without her. And at that point, we really wanted to get on our own. So, what year was this? Um, nineteen seventy-four. Okay, so you and you and Helen fly to Paris, and and what happens? Well, you know, we um, went to the Tulip Hotel, which was this hotel that the college had gotten a room for us in, and then we. You know, we wrote Mother a letter from the Tulip Hotel saying that we never wanted to see her again. And then we waited every day. We would go to the student mailboxes in the lobby of the American College in Paris, waiting, waiting to see if there would be a letter from Mother writing us back. You say, that seems pretty harsh that you just you, to to write your mother a letter telling her you never want to see her again. Was I mean, were you 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 guys were serious? We were at the time, and it was a very harsh thing to do, you know. But uh, we just uh, were in a state of revolt, and because of all these years of just being the three of us, we we felt so um isolated with mother that you know that we felt we had to run away perhaps that was unfair of us i don't know but we we just felt that we needed to escape you know was it, and, I mean, what was it was it was it uh was it something like you know was was it exhausting uh to be with your mother like did you feel like a a sense of uh psychological relief in her absence I think what we were going through was really what just any child of 16 or 17 goes through. It's a perfectly natural thing, you know, just to, to want to get off on your own. It's just that it was much more aggravated in us because we were all three so together on our own and isolated from everyone else, you know, that it became this sort of urgent necessity we felt to to escape. So know. so what was your and I don't think it's been a natural thing at all. I think it's perfectly natural really. Yeah, I mean I think so too. I think it's natural to want to get off on your own and to get some form of independence. I think maybe the letter um is a little bit unusual or a bit a little bit uh unique, you know, to send a letter basically saying we never want to see you again. Yes, well, obviously, we didn't really mean it, since, as I said, we went every day waiting for a response, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, you, and did you so ever get did we you ever weren't get one? really, yes, and the letter arrived, and, and we took it, you know, and went to a cafe and opened it, and and it was a beautiful letter from Mother, um, not mentioning anything about our running away or of what we'd said about never wanting to see Mother, and Mother didn't even mention that. It was sort of a, uh, a letter that had this sort of melancholy atmosphere about it, but it, but it was just describing what Mother had been doing for the past few days in Washington, and Mother spoke of this um, 
bird that had flown in the top the top story bay window of you know into the room that mother was reading there on the top floor and how mother had had to get Mr. Schwoyer, the landlord, to come upstairs and and chase the bird out the window and our mother always told us that a bird flying in the house was a a, a, a sign of death and uh, I think for mother that was just the, the, the symbol of our departure you know that that bird flying in uh, it was a very beautiful letter and and we were so happy to get it and and then we wrote Mother back, and we began to correspond with Mother, and, and, and you know, always after that, we're very, very close, you know. So uh, I want to get to Paris and, and what you did while you were there. Were, were you uh, fluent in, in French at that point? Could you speak the language? <laughs> Well, we thought we were when we got there, you know, because we've been speaking this form of French to one another for several years, you know, like since I was 14, you know, and and dreaming in French of going to Paris and uh, dreaming of, of the uh, wild bohemian lives there in French. And then we got there, I mean, well, and we were terrified to speak to anybody else in French, you know, because we were terrified of making horrible mistakes. And also because it had become so much just this sort of secret language that we spoke only to one another. And now suddenly our secret language wasn't secret anymore. It was, you know, lingua franca, you know. And, uh, and we realized pretty quickly that we, you know, we didn't really speak it so well at all, at all. <laughs> and we had to, you know, painfully learn it. Um, which, you know, I still feel like I'm trying to learn French. But I, I guess after about two years there, we did sort of begin to really speak it. And then, uh, and then we thought, but wait a second, uh, if that language that we were spoke so effortlessly wasn't French, then what was it, you know? But but we'd forgotten it in the process of learning real French. So did you so obviously you studied French in school as you were a child, correct? Well, um beginning yeah in uh, I think uh I did not really begin studying French in school until my junior year in high school, the first two years there, we had to study Latin and and could not study anything else. And then after two years, they made you, made you stop studying Latin, which was sort of crazy, because uh, I would have loved to continue studying Latin as well as studying French. But, um, you know, and then I began studying in high school. But, you know, but really, I, I would, you know, would study... Started learning French really when I was fourteen. When Helen started high school, and started studying French. Okay, and so what was? I mean, I'm backtracking a little bit here, but I'm curious. Like, what was your high school experience like? Like, what were you like as a child in school? Because you're coming from this uh, family situation where you felt fairly isolated, but then by day you're in school with all these other kids. Uh, like, what were you like social? You know, what were you like socially? 
Well, I was extremely shy, and actually, I still am, you know. But um, uh, well, um, I don't know. Um, Did you have friends? Uh, some friends, yeah. Um, I um. Didn't well in the eighth grade. I started having some friends. Um, we had um, started when I was in the um, fifth grade. We started going to Catholic school, to a Catholic school called Cathedral Day School, um, and. I guess, I don't know, I didn't really have any particularly close friends there. Um, People did, you know, the other boys would tease me rather a lot. lot. For what? Um, I guess because I spoke strangely, I don't know. Well, yeah, and let me, let me ask you about your accent, because if you come from Savannah, uh, I've been to Savannah, that's not a, that's not a Savannah accent, per se, like, it, um, it's a very unique uh, diction, you know, like, where does that come from? Well, I, I think, you know, just from growing up so much just alone, with Mother and Helen and me, um, just reading a lot, not really talking to anybody except just the three of us, you know. Now, did, 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 um, did your mother uh, and, and Helen speak with the same accent, or was that just yours alone? Helen and I speak in a, a very much the same sort of a way. Uh, mother, I think, spoke uh, differently. Um, Helen says, and I think it's true, that Mother had sort of a Richmond accent, a Virginia accent. Um, but, and Helen says, and I think it's probably true that she taught me to speak as much as Mother did, you know. But we just wound up, I don't know, speaking this way. And so, and so the other uh, boys in your class would tease you for this? I think it was more just my voice itself that was strange, not so much my accent as my voice. And uh, the prince, and uh, I don't know, I guess they would make sexual innuendos, you know, things like, do you read Adam magazine? I think, well, I don't know what Adam magazine is. I wouldn't ask, like, got this sort of sexual thrill from what they said. Like, I guess it's something erotic, you know, that they're referring to. I guess it's what I would think without admitting it to myself. You know, they would take me aside and say things like that or they would say, you know, your voice is so strange, you know. We want to hear you scream, scream or we'll make you... It's sort of a terrifying thing to have someone say to you. Yeah, it's awful, uh, yeah. And, 
And, uh, you know, and then, you know, the principal was this horrible nun named Sister Messia. Uh, she would always take me aside during lunch hour, and she would say, your voice is so strange. Do you think there's something wrong with you? You should consult a doctor. Tell your mother to send you to a doctor. And that was, I don't know, really sort of <laughs> yeah. Well, and then like, you, you know, you like, sexually, uh, when you were an adolescent, like, were, was there any, were there any significant others? Were you dating at all? Like, were you, or were you isolated no. in that way as well? Completely isolated in that way. And so, and so, uh, I mean, like, if you don't mind me asking, like, do you have a, what is your orientation? Like, did you, were you, aware, uh, were you hetero? Were you know, what, what was happening there? All my life I've really loved men, you know, but I, uh, I guess I really did not come to a full acceptance of that fact about me until I was 20 years old, uh, living in, I was living in London at that point, um, and I just admitted that to myself. It was a very painful thing. What uh, what prompted it? You're in London, and then what was that process like? I mean, was it just kind of a... Uh, it sounds like it was just sort of a quiet moment, or was there something that specific that uh, you feel prompted that decision uh, of self-acceptance? Just, um, all by myself that year, because it was my, the first year I'd ever been without Helen, you know. And that was a very drastic thing for me. You know, I was suddenly alone, and I was um, I was studying at the Courtauld Institute, which is a school for art history that's part of the University of London. I was living in this um, old, run-down hotel called the White House Hotel. It was in this uh, series of big old Georgian row houses on this square called Earl's Court Square and uh, the hotel was had was condemned pretty much you know but there were still a few people living in it and they let me have a room there on the second floor this big old room with a window kind of looking out on the corner of the square and none of the lights in the second floor hallway worked so you had to and in the, and the, the lobby was this dim, vast, sort of cat, uh, almost like a dim, vast chasm, you know, <laughs> with a staircase at the back. And I would go up the stairs and into the dark and down this pitch dark hallway and get to my room. And, uh, and I just, uh, just felt so lonely and I, uh, you know, was, didn't really make many friends at the school, and I'd just come home and just look at myself in the mirror, you know, the, this mirror door of this armoire, and take off all my clothes and look at myself and just think, oh, my God, you know, oh, my God, and I, that. And then I just 
told myself, okay, you know, you love men, and I, it was a horrifying thing to admit to myself, and, and I just thought, well, I love you anyway. I just look into my eyes and say, well, I love you anyway, and, and that was that year. <laughs> wow. And so, uh, was there, were there uh, concerns that Helen and your mother might not accept that about you, or did you feel no? I no, I never was concerned about that. I was only concerned about myself, accepting myself. I, I think I instinctively felt that they would accept me anyway. That I happened to be. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, and so, when that's interesting because I think for most people who are. Uh, coming out it seems like the story that i often read about or hear is that they're they're concerned about family and friends and whether or not they're going to be accepted by people that they're close with and i was never concerned about that it was always myself and my acceptance of myself that 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 was this terrible thing for me you know was there? I mean, was there some part of you that didn't want to be that way? Obviously, is that what? It yes, absolutely, absolutely. And and do you know why? Was it simply just that you didn't want to be uh, different, or no? It had nothing to do with being different. I just it seemed like such a sad, impossible kind of thing to be. Um, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So then, I guess moving forward, like you're in London, you're attending this school, uh, studying art history. Yeah. And then, what were there specific? Uh, was there a specific um, tradition that you were focused on in your studies? Oh, um, well, at this school. Um, uh, the program that I was in was a three-year program, um, and I only stayed the first year. After that year, I came to New York. Uh, okay. Um, but um, but yes, uh, you know, at this school, you know, the first year was sort of a general uh, history. It was sort of generalized. It wasn't a specific time period in during that first year, but in the second year, I was going to have to choose a, uh, I think something like a 50-year period to concentrate on, and then the third year would have been like a maybe 10-year period within that period, and I had been I was planning to... Um, Choose um, uh, the Romanesque period, so probably sometime in like the eleventh or early twelfth, like in in the eleventh or twelfth century, and that was what I was going to be spending the next two years of my life devoted to, and I think that's one reason that it that I decided to leave and come to New York. <laughs> I, felt, I said, I think this is crazy. I'm training myself, training myself to be a librarian, really, and to be completely out of touch with, with modern life. And, and I think I was beginning to feel instinctively that even studying art history was not really 
the only reason I was doing it was just to go to school, you know, and that wasn't really my interest. And I, my interest was writing, you know, and being an artist. And Mother had raised us to be artists, which was, I think, a very good thing that Mother did to us. Well, how did she? How did she I do that? How did, how did think that? Think that I did love Mother because I loved my Mother immensely, and I think she was a great soul and a great painter too. Uh, and she, in some ways, think she was a magnificent mother, and she raised us to to be visual artists, really, you know, to sketch and draw and paint, and which is what Helen went on to do. And I, eventually, during my childhood, uh, one of the terrible realizations that I had to go through was that I, I just realized that Helen was just so much of a greater artist than I was, you know as a visual artist, and that I just, uh, if I wasn't going to go mad from jealousy, I just had to choose something else to do. And uh, and that's when I started, I guess, writing, you know. And, uh, and so, the, the, so, this, I, so I this just, began this began during childhood, your writing, or was this... Yeah, probably when I was 15 or 16. Okay. And so at that point, you kind of saw a way forward, or at least the, the, the seed was planted, and you were going to, you at least had that ambition. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then once you got to New York, like, when did you really start to work, uh, you know, in a more professional vein, if that's the right adjective? Well, I guess, you know, when I got to New York, I, uh, you know, I transferred from the Courtauld Institute in London, I transferred to Columbia, you know, which is where I was going to, you know, get my degree in art history, and I went for a semester there, and then I, uh, I, well, after the first two weeks in New York, I found a room in my house on 10th Street, you know, where I was ever since until last August. Uh, and then I just, uh, I just really loved it downtown, and I I transferred from Columbia to the new school just to be downtown. I just wanted to be downtown. And then Helen, at the point, was living in Paris, and then Helen came and joined me in New York, you know, in the house on 10th Street, and we were together again, and we just became, you know... Uh, shy as I was, I never had any ambition ever or any inkling that I would uh, become involved in show business or the theater, but I knew that as a writer I would have to do readings and that I would do readings. That that I was prepared to do and I wrote poetry and I started doing readings in nightclubs and and then got involved through, because they were nightclubs, uh, I got involved in performing, and that's how I got involved in the theater. So you started acting? Yeah, people would say, I love your voice, be in my play, and there were all these people writing plays, you know, and they would ask me to be in their plays, and then I started doing, you know, stage work, and and then I thought, well, hell, maybe I can write a play. So I started writing some plays, too. So, yeah, and that's how I got involved in acting in the theater. Okay, so how did acting... I mean, can you talk about how acting uh, corresponded with your shyness? I mean, clearly, 
those two things seem to be operating in contradiction to one another. But did did the uh, did the stage work give you uh, a, a certain freedom that you might not have felt in your day to day life? Uh, from an, you know, yeah. in terms of being expressive, was that like a, a nice kind of like uh, release to be up there and performing? Yes, it was. Uh, you know, I I just. Uh, you know, with my, like, the, the pieces that I write, I write a lot of monologues, you know. And uh, I've always uh, been able to express things in writing that I would never be able to express in speaking. I think one reason that I became a writer and that I do write is that I find it so difficult to express anything really in speaking, I found it impossible really to talk to people. I almost hate talking. Um, You're doing fine. You're doing a great job, I think. <laughs> okay, well, good. You know, but I, I, I think the reason that I love the stage and that I love writing and performing is that I, is that I am so shy and and that it becomes a kind of release, you know. So, in your day-to-day life, when you're when you're moving around New York, um, are you socializing very much? I mean, do you have a group of? Obviously, you have friends there if you've lived there for that long, and, and especially if you live for the, for that long in one place, and you're working in this theater community. Uh, I mean, sometimes I think, my God, you're turning into a social butterfly. What are you doing? <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I also uh, am alone a lot too. I do both. I. I uh, in some ways, I, I really, really do thank God for the theater and the fact that I got involved in the theater because, you know, because it is collaborative and it makes me, it forces me, you know, to to work with other people. And that's an amazing thing about it, you know. Yeah, the collaborative and I, I Yeah, that's, it's great. You know, I, I have to work with other people. And, and so I've loved the theater for that. All these years that I've been, you know, being in other people's plays and and having other people direct my plays and you know, working with other actors and um, you know, it's an amazing thing to do and it's it's the the main source of my uh, social life. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. Do you have and did you ever? I mean, did you ever experience any kind of stage fright? If you have this shyness, like did, when you first started out, especially do. Was getting up on stage a terrifying prospect? Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's it still is, you know, in a way, you know, um, and I guess probably always will be. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at the beginning, it, it could be pretty terrifying. I think the the most terrified that I've ever been thus far <laughs> in my life was um, before, like the two days before I staged and performed in an actual play that I wrote, the first play I wrote, um, not a monologue, but a play. There was a three-character play at the Pyramid, and um, I'd done some monologues before, really, and... And although I had, you know, stage fright before going on, that was sort of a, I think, a normal kind of stage fright. And I didn't really, 
have any sense of questioning doom about myself performing a monologue, revealing all these you know pretty dark things about me. Uh, that was uh, I was okay with that, but but this play for some reason, I don't know. Um, I think it's because there were other characters in it, and yet it was still all about myself somehow. And I just didn't really, I did not understand the play. And I, did, I, I didn't see how anybody else possibly could since I didn't, you know. And I really felt in the two days before I performed that play as though I was approaching, that going on stage to do that play was like, I was approach, uh, what I was approaching was really like going like climbing up onto the scaffolding to be hanged or to be executed. Jesus. <laughs> That's how terrifying it was. And so how did it go? Like, well, give me, try to paint, paint the picture of what it was like when the house lights came down and you walked out. Oh, well, you know, the show just sort of was like a, we did the show, you know, the show was just performing, which is, you just do it, you know, and, and, one of the great blessings of stage lights is that they blind you. I was going to say. I was going to say. So when you're up there, you can't see anybody, correct? You can't see the no, crowd. no. Okay, that's no, nice. which is great. Yeah, and so I, in this blindness, did this show. You know, um, it was called Motel Blue Nineteen, and it's about this evil, beautiful woman who runs a haunted motel and has this. Lackey, who's her slave, who's a hunchback, and she's sexually obsessed with this beautiful man who's staying in the motel. And the hunchback also runs the haunted house ride and loves to make it go super fast and have the train derail, which kills all the children on the train. And uh, I played the hunchback. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, Oh, I don't know. And at the end of the show, everybody seemed to love it. There was a wild applause. <laughs> and, then, and then I was so relieved that the show was over. I thought, well, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and then Bobby Bradley, who ran the pyramid, called me up the day, next day and said, that was so great. Everybody loved it. You have to do it again next week. And I almost fainted from horror. <laughs> was, it the, was it the same feeling, though, even though you'd done it once and had a good response? Was the, was the fear yeah. same? Yeah, I, thought, I still felt like I was going to go to the scaffolding, <laughs> to the scaffolding. You know, yeah, but, it's, see, it's, but I did it again the next week, and then um, I don't know, I don't know, and then I didn't write another play until a number of years later. But I, but I did. I wrote a monologue, um, and I've been lucky, and the people always ask me to do things, so I keep doing them. You know, because I say because when people ask me, I say I tend to say yes. And so it makes me do things. And uh, I had a friend who was running this, you know, theater group called Theater Tweed. His name is Kevin Maloney. And, you know, I'd done, you know, some short monologues and readings, and I'd done this play at the Pyramid, but Kevin said, you know, I'm doing a new work festival for the summer. Be in it. So I said, okay, and I wrote this monologue called The Poetry Killer. And I... uh and what was that, that about? Performed. It was um, about me alone in the house on East 36th Street. 
um, basically that's what it was about me alone in this old creaky house uh, but when I staged it for this festival I for some reason decided that there should be that my friend Samoa who's this great performance artist should be on stage with me and that he should be the house the spirit of the house and so did um, you I mean, did you write a part for him or was he just there as like a he, visual he was, he was just there kind of making noises and making thunder and uh, I did all the speaking. In retrospect, it was insane to do that. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I performed, I think it was the three weeks, you know, we did this festival, and every day Samoa would be there on stage valiantly trying to portray the spirit of this empty house that I was in alone. <laughs> and, you know, and every night I just thought that the show didn't work, and then at the end of the run, I thought, well, so much for that show, and I'll never do that again. And then Kevin Maloney, a few months later, said, well, you know, we're doing a benefit performance in New Hope, Pennsylvania, to raise money for the theater company. Would you do that show again? And I thought, are you crazy, you know, <laughs> that show? That didn't work. Uh, but then I did it again, and because of transportation difficulties, Samoa couldn't be there, so I just did it by myself, and it worked. It was better without the spirit. Yeah, and then I realized, my God, that was ridiculous. Of course, you know, the play's about me alone in this empty house. I should just be alone on stage. <laughs> now, <laughs> Why didn't that ever occur to me? And so, but if Kevin hadn't asked me to do it again, I never would have done that show again. And so was that, was that like the epiphany where you realized that uh, you know, the monologue was maybe your strongest uh, form, or, or is that a misreading? Well, I certainly, you know, ever since then, I've loved working in that form, you know. And, and my plays all have a lot of monologues in them. And Even if there are other characters, they, they all have at some point monologues i love monologues yeah and so what are you wearing when you do this thing like are you just wearing whatever you normally wear or is there like a costume aspect to it as well well i've had for many years a costume that i always wore that only really about um about 10 years ago I think it's the first time I ever did a monologue or a play of mine not wearing this costume. I'm getting to the point where I think maybe I'd like to wear it again <laughs> and still have it. What is uh, it? And what is it's um it's an an old wool sailor's sailor's jacket of a sailor suit. I only have the jacket with one of those sailor collars, like a little boy would wear, you know, in the 19th century, you know. And where did you get this? Um, Helen got it at a flea market somewhere. I can't remember where and gave it to me. So what was uh, Helen's role in your uh, artistic life? I know you guys collaborated quite a bit, correct? Yes. Um, Helen um, uh, painted sets for many of my shows and plays, you know. Uh, and uh, uh, 
really until Helen left to get married, Helen always made sets for my shows. Um, so, so she eventually went and got married? Yes. So she met somebody. What was that like? Did, did, did you find yourself uh, upset that she was leaving you, or was it something you were happy about? Well, um, I don't think I really knew exactly what I thought at the time. You know, um, uh, I guess this was um, this was about sixteen years ago. I was thirty-nine, um, and people would say, "Oh, don't you must feel lonely?" And I would say, oh, "No, I don't." You know, I don't really feel lonely. So I think after a few years, I realized, you know, that, that I was probably had been lying, you know, <laughs> but, it, but it was sort of a drastic thing. Um, but um, you know, um, did she continue to live in New York? Well, um, no, not really. Um, um, Helen's. Husband had he uh, at that point was living in New Jersey in a town called God, what was it called? I can't remember now. It was near Saddle River, but um, uh, he Helen and Harvey quickly after after they were married moved from there because Hel- Helen just didn't like it there, and Harvey I think began to really like began to realize that he had never really liked it there, you know. So they moved to um, Greenport, Long Island, which is at the tip of the North Fork of Long Island, you know. So um, they lived there. Um, And uh, then they got a place in Italy. Where in Italy? Just outside of a little town called Terquinia, which is um, about an hour north of Rome on the coast, you know, the um, west coast of Italy, and they got a small farm just a few miles outside of the town. And is that where they live now, permanently? Or do they split their time? Well, um, they split their time between Greenport, you know, on in Long Island, on the tip of the North Fork, and there in Tarquinia. That's a, that's a nice and life. What what does Harvey do? Harvey was a, a doctor, a lung specialist. Uh, Harvey died, I think, six years ago now. They were married for ten years, and... Um, Harvey was much older than Helen. Um, Harvey was born on our mother's birthday, September the 3rd, six years after mother was born. Mother was born in 1920 and Harvey in 1926. Um, so, uh, Harvey, I think, always had a deep sense of kinship with our mother, um, Especially because, you know, um, well, Harvey was Jewish and 
very passionately so and uh, uh, our mother we discovered um, when I was 20 and Helen was 21 we discovered that mother was Jewish as well you know which is something that mother had hidden from us also um, mother's mother Edna was from a Jewish family from Richmond. Um, and why do you think she hid that from you? Well, I, I think that I don't know exactly. I think Mother must have felt that it would make us feel strange somehow. Um, and uh, Mother, as I said, was really sort of a paranoid, she was paranoid about other people and felt very much that other people would not understand us instinctively and I guess must have felt that anything that would heighten our sense of us own strangeness might, might be something that, to keep from us. So now, is, you, is uh, your mother still with us? Mother died in 1983. Oh, she did, okay. Yeah. And uh, what happened? She just got ill and... Well, I'm not sure exactly. Um, you know, I moved to New York in 1977, and Helen followed a few months later, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, when we had run away to Paris in 1974, you know, we had all left Savannah, you know, uh, at pretty much the beginning of that summer, I graduated in June from Benedictine Military School, and um, Helen and Mother and Helen came down for my graduation. Um, uh, Helen, you know, was going to GW, George Washington University, and... Uh, all through uh, my childhood, we had, you know, always gone north for the summer, and and actually, uh, mother was always trying to escape Savannah, you know, and uh, we had lived in Alexandria for two years when I was, you know, in kindergarten and in the first grade, and but then we moved back to Savannah, but but we always. Mother had found, Mother met at the National Gallery this this old man named Mr. Schwoyer, who was in his 80s, and he um, lived in this big old Victorian house in Georgetown, and he'd like to rent rooms out in his house. He ran it sort of as a rooming house. And we would go there and stay in the summers, you know, when I was like four and five, you know. Uh, we would stay there, and Mr. Schwarzer became sort of like a member of, was sort of like a relative. Um, and Last year that I was, you know, at Benedictine Military School, um, Helen went north to start college, and 
it's sort of crazy in retrospect. It never occurred to anybody that, you know, we always stayed in this room that was just there for us at Mr. Schwager's house, but Helen, out of a sense of obligation, got a room in the dormitory, you know? And she was sharing this dorm room with these two other girls, and uh, she Helen phoned Savannah after two nights just weeping. She was just hated, this, this dorm room, and and she was just miserable. And, and as soon as Mother hung up, she just started packing and left the next day for Washington. And as soon as Helen hung up, she thought, my God, why don't I just go stay in Mr. Schwoyer's house? And so she did and began to love it there. But then Mother arrived, you know, which I guess was another thing that made us feel like we had to run away because Mother then spent that whole year walking Helen every day to her college classes, <laughs> picking her up at the end of every day. And, oh, no. You know, and, and then we went along with that to, in terms of our running away by lying to Mother and saying, well, Edgar's not going to go to Duke. He's going to go to GW, which was our plan to get north to Washington and fly from there to Paris. But we went along with Mother's idea, okay, we're all going to just live together in the room Mr. Schwoyer's for all of college, you know. We sort of fed into that to, 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 get a, to run away, but, you know, that was, you know, sort of what had been planned, you know, but, but the thing is that what I'm trying to say is that when I graduated, really, from Benedictine, we all left Savannah and never returned. None of us ever went back until Mother died. And then how, and I never really got a clear answer as to like how she passed away. You said you didn't really know? Well, shall we say, what I'm saying is that Mother continued to live in Washington in the room, you know, on the top floor of Mr. Schwoyer's house. And, you know, we would visit Mother there in Washington, and Mother would come visit us in New York, you know. And Mother um, hadn't, at that point, been back to New York since she had been, I guess, in her early 20s, studying at the Art Students League and living here, you know. And so Mother just was living there at Mr. Schwoyer's and um, uh, this was one spring, it was the spring of 1983, Mother, you know, was planning to come visit us in New York, you know, which Mother had done quite often. And uh, Mother called and said, you know, I, I, uh, I just don't think I can come right now. I'm feeling a little sick. And it, we had this very stilted phone conversation with Mother because... Our friend Nadine from Paris had literally just arrived at the house when Mother called. Yes, I looked out the window and I saw Nadine getting out of the taxi in front of our house on 10th Street. And I thought, my God, she's, she's insane. You know, and, you know, Nadine came upstairs, you know, and, and uh, she was just raving about... Um, how she had come to New York to kill um, Lucifer 
and she knew who the incarnation of our, she was there to find who, where Lucifer was and what his incarnation was. And, and she found an, a chain that was hanging in the closet of our room. And he was standing in the middle of the room, <laughs> twirling around, just um, swinging this huge, heavy chain over her head around and around the room. And the phone rang. It was mother saying that she was feeling felt a little sick and couldn't come to visit us. And we just said, oh, uh, okay, mother, um, bye. You know, we didn't, we didn't know what to say. Nadine's here standing in the middle of the room and she's insane. You know? <laughs> we were just speechless. And, um, and uh, uh, well, Nadine um, stayed with us. We didn't know what else to do but let her stay with us. Her mother had given her a one-way plane ticket and something like $60 and sent her raving mad to visit us from Paris. That's a nice mother. (laughs) No. Thanks. And then her mother stopped answering her phone and didn't answer her phone for for 72 days. And we just, you know, at a certain point moved out of our own house and left Nadine there because we didn't know what to do. <laughs> and we went to stay with our friend Richard who lived in his apartment uptown. And and while we were, we were staying there, we told Richard, God, you know, we had the most stilted conversation with Mother, you know. Uh, and Richard, you know, for some reason we were so, we've been brought up, you know, to be so respectful of other people's property that it seemed that, Blasphemous, blasphemous to us to even ask Richard if we could make a long-distance phone call. But Richard, thank God, said, you'll have to use my phone and call your mother now. Just call her and explain, you know, why that was such a strange conversation. Thank God Richard made us do that, and we did. It's the last time we ever spoke to mother, you know. And we just said, mother, you know, we're so sorry we sounded so strange on the phone, but Nadine was there, and she's insane. And furthermore, Nadine had just told us, she had just told us this, furthermore, Mother, she thinks that you are the incarnation of Lucifer, and she's going to Washington, and she's planning to kill you. <laughs> Don't let her into Mr. Schwarz's house. Goodness gracious. This Nadine and is, like, legitimately cuckoo. She's nuts. She was crazy at that point, yeah. And, uh, and so Mother said, okay, and that was, that was the last that we ever spoke to Mother. And, and then... After 72 days in New York, repeatedly getting thrown into Bellevue and released from Bellevue, and to my knowledge, having slept only one night during those entire 72 days, we finally got hold of Nadine's mother and got her to send Nadine a plane ticket. Nadine left to go back to Paris, and we went back to the house in 10th Street where we learned that mother had died. Oh, my goodness. So, and where, where, Mother died in her room on the top floor of Mr. Schwarz's house. Mr. Schwarz found Mother. He came upstairs because he, he hadn't seen Mother in like six days. And he said that Mother was standing in the bay window, leaning against the table with her back to him, looking out the window. And Mr. Schwarz went up and tapped Mother on the shoulder and then realized that she was dead. Standing up. Yeah, that's what Mr. Schwarzer said. Wow. I never heard of that. I know. I'm not sure if he's, if that's... Who knows what he means exactly by that. I could never fully clarify what he meant, but that's what he said. Well, you um, know, and it, it's it, it's sort of funny uh, in, in a, 
awful sort of way, but you're telling me this story of, of uh, your mother's passing, and all I can think of right now at this moment is who's the unlucky bastard who had to sit next to Nadine on that flight to Paris? <laughs> oh, God, I know. I, I should, they must have... I think they straight-jacketed her on the plane over to New York, so who knows what happened on the flight back. <laughs> well, Edgar, I'll tell you, I could, I could keep talking to you forever. It's so interesting, and you have so many great stories, and uh, I really have enjoyed uh, this time, so I appreciate it. I wish you all the best with your, uh, your various theater projects and uh, all the work that you do with The Moth, and I don't know. I, thanks so much once again. Well, thank you, Dad, so much. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's been really fun to talk to you. <laughs> okay, folks, there you have it. That's Edgar Oliver. Uh, I told you, he's great. You can check him out on Facebook. And uh, be sure, if you're in the Brooklyn area on May 28th, to go see him at the Nervous Breakdown Literary Experience at Public Assembly in Williamsburg. Uh, and that, again, is happening in conjunction with our good friends at Emergency Press. Uh, this show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It's on Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thank you once again to today's sponsor, MP Publishing. Be sure to keep your eye out for the debut novel, by UV Zalco. It's called A Brilliant Novel in the Works. It is available now for pre-order and will be in stores on August 14th. For more information, please visit mppublishingusa.com. Uh, okay, so I've got to go pack a suitcase and organize myself. Uh, I always leave it to the last minute, and I don't know why I do it. I don't know why I torture myself in this way. It's always a rush. It's always frantic trying to get it all together. Uh, the message of this program, how to sum it up, how to find uh, the thread, the, the central theme. I think the message is uh, live your life, uh, live your life, live your life and do it uh, the way that you want to do it. And if that means that doing it in the way that you want to do it is somehow at odds with the way that most people do it, fuck it. Okay. As long as you're not, uh, you know, hurting yourself or hurting someone else or insisting on having sexual relations while dressed as a plushie, because that's a little weird. Uh, or, you know what, that's okay. The, the plushie thing, it's relatively harmless. If you want to do it, uh, go for it, okay? Please remember that Josephine was six years older than Napoleon and that Abraham Lincoln had blue eyes. I will be back again soon. Thank you once again, and as always, for listening. I'm going to go pack in a geometrically efficient way. Uh, I'm going to get organized. I'm going to put my liquids in a plastic bag. And uh, I'm going to go to the airport tomorrow, and I'm going to people watch, and I'm not going to fall asleep sitting up with my mouth open in my airplane seat. I'm not going to do it, and when there is turbulence, I'm not going to freak out. I'm just going to do deep breathing exercises, and I'm going to fasten my seatbelt and fly at 500 miles an hour in an eastward direction. <laughs>